Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, in King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpeznes, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abnego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm, the, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. He was assigned your food and drink. Why should, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name's Jeff. Uh, Great to see you here this evening. Uh, This is the start of a new series uh, looking at the book of Daniel. And if you're a Christian here tonight, uh, I want to ask you a question. What is it that makes you feel most out of step with our culture? What makes you feel most out of step with our culture? Is it your lifestyle compared to people around you? Uh, The fact that you're here at church on a Sunday evening instead of down uh, having a drink with friends? Uh, Is it the fact that uh, you don't uh, live together with your boyfriend or girlfriend and that's what other people are, are, are trying to do. Uh, what is it that makes you feel different? Is it when uh, new legislation hits the news, um, stuff about uh, laws around assisted dying or abortion or same-sex marriage? Does that make you feel like an outsider, perhaps? You think, you know, my culture celebrates all these things, but I just can't. Is it when you've uh, come to uni 
or, or you've started a new job and you kind of meet all the people and you find out that actually uh, there's, there's only about three people who would call themselves a Christian and of them, none of them go to church and really it's just you. Uh, is it when you switch on the TV and watch Married at First Sight that you just think, I'm an outsider here? There's actually heaps of those moments. Uh, if, if you're someone who wants to live a life shaped by Jesus, shaped by the Bible, um, but then you encounter the world and you find that you're, uh, you swim in this vast, deep ocean of Aussie culture that is just completely different. What do you do? How do you live as a minority in a hostile culture? Or maybe you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Uh, Maybe that's you, but you've noticed the same thing, that Christians are actually a little bit strange. There's something a little bit weird about us. We don't always fit in with the culture around us. Uh, There's something different. And maybe you've observed that and you think that's bad. Or maybe you think that's interesting, you know. Maybe I need to to find out something new about uh, these these people that follow Jesus. Uh, If that's you, if you're uh, here tonight, aware that Christians are sometimes a bit strange... Uh, we're glad that you're here, uh, glad that you're willing to join us for this evening, um, to listen to the Bible, and um, if you're someone who has questions, we're, this is the right place to be. Uh, we're all here because we want to grow, we want to have our questions answered. Union Church isn't just for people who have everything worked out, and so we're glad that you're here tonight. And so uh, what we're doing, not just tonight, but throughout this semester, is we're launching into a new series looking at uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. And it's about the clash of cultures. Daniel is this uh, book and it's about kings and kingdoms. Uh, It's about God's people in a foreign place, uh, living as a minority uh, in a hostile culture. It's about the future. It's about uh, how to live in the present, when the present is tough, and when you look ahead into the future, and that's tough as well. Uh, That is the book of Daniel. But it's not actually about us, uh, so much as it's about God. It's a book that tells us about God, the God who rules over kings and kingdoms, and the God who is with his people in exile, and the God who holds the present and the future in his hand. Uh, That's what we're doing. And so chapter one is really the perfect introduction we're going to be looking at that tonight. And you can break this story down into the three kind of main characters, if you will. Uh, Babylon, Daniel, and God. They're the three main players. Babylon, Daniel, God. And if you like subheadings, we have those as well. Babylon, the consuming culture. Daniel, the faithful foreigner. And God, the subversive sovereign. So let's dig into it. Firstly, Babylon. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 set the scene for us. The year is 605 BC and Babylon is the bully, right? They've been down uh, to Egypt, stealing Egypt's lunch money. Um, We've got a slide of where things are. Uh, So they've been down here to Egypt, bashing them up, and they've come back up around, uh, back home. And on their way, they besiege Jerusalem and they raid the temple and they take the king. If this is a a youth group wide game, they've definitely captured the flag at this point. And so uh, that's what's going on in world history. And we read history scientifically. Um, We think, well, Babylon won because they had more chariots, um, more swords. But in the ancient world, uh, they read history theologically, spiritually. Uh, It was a question of whose God is more powerful, 
right? And, and this is a bad look for God, to have the temple ransacked and the king dragged off and people sent into exile. Babylon is the power here. They're the world superpower. But they weren't just about hard military power. Thanks. They were also into kind of soft power. Um, you see, when you take over the world, you've got to do something with it. You've got this world. Uh, what are you going to do with all the people? And so uh, their system was cultural assimilation. That is, uh, just convince the whole world that they should love being Babylonian, just convert them. And so one of their tactics was that they would take away the elites, the young leaders, the Instagram influencers. They'd grab them and try and uh, soak them in Babylonian culture. That was the the task. And so it says they, they take Israelites from the royal family and the nobility and they enrol them at BCU, Babylonian Conversion University. And they give them units uh, in Babylonian language and literature, a hundred Akkadian classics you must read before you die, that kind of thing, uh, myths, uh, things about their gods, dreams, divinations, omens, all these things, and they, they would teach them all of this stuff about the Babylonian culture. And so uh, we find Daniel and his friends here uh, are, are part of that group taken from Israel, brought to this foreign land, this city full of idols, and kind of wooed into the the life of Babylonia. They get food and wine from the king's table, all the perks of the royal life, and they have their names changed, their identities uh, erased, no longer Hebrew names that belong to their God Yahweh, but Babylonian names that belong to their gods. This is Babylon, the consuming culture. It wants to overwhelm them and take them in. And it's worth thinking about that because that's often how culture works. It absorbs us. You think you've enrolled at UWA or or Notre Dame, but you're already enrolled. You're enrolled in ACU, the Aussie Conversion University. Uh, Our culture kind of wants us to think the same way and and the Aussie God is you, right? Uh, That's it. Our idol is the selfie. That's the the picture of what we're like. See, our culture worships the self. Self Self-gratification. Do what makes you happy. Self-actualization. Be authentic to yourself. And that's the culture that draws us in and kind of uh, overwhelms us because it's got great movies, Right, fantastic storylines where uh, the woman is the hero because she uh, realizes that she doesn't really love her husband, and so she leaves and she travels and she finds herself and she finds true love, and all these stories that revolve around the self, and everything's built on that: our language and our literature and our TV shows and. Uh, our lectures at uni and bosses in the workplace and all this stuff all soak us in a culture that is about us. But what we're going to learn from Daniel is that we must not be consumed by that. So listen to what Jesus wants for his disciples. In John chapter 17, this is in the New Testament now, uh, Jesus prays for his disciples and he says this, he says, my prayer is not that you, God, take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, 
even as I am not of it. See, Jesus, Jesus says they're in the world, don't take them out, they're in the world but not of the world. Uh, living as foreigners, not absorbed by the world around them. And I think that's a great reminder for us as we start out into a new semester, uh, that for those of us who call on the name Jesus, we are in the world but not of the world. Uh, living here but not defined by the culture around us. And Daniel here is a model for that. That's why it's going to be so good for us to, to dig deep into this book because Daniel is a model of what it's like uh, to live as a minority, to live in a hostile culture. And this chapter is about that, how Daniel responds to being in exile. So let's turn now to our next player, Daniel. Daniel is like a cork in the ocean here. But have a look at what he does, thrown into this a system which is trying to take his identity, convert him to uh, being a Babylonian. What does he do? Uh, well, first, he doesn't fight everything. Did you notice that? He doesn't uh, kick up a stink about every little thing. He, he seems to go along with the name change and uh, the Babylonian classes. Uh, not everything is evil or immoral, but he does draw the line somewhere. Notice that. He doesn't just go along with the whole program. He refuses, it says, he refuses to let himself be defiled. That's the key thing. He draws the line at the point where he would be unfaithful to God because God is still the one that he's uh, looking to serve. He's the faithful foreigner in this foreign place looking to be faithful to God. When he draws the line, he draws the line where he would cross that line of faithfulness. And when he draws that line, it's about conviction. Did you notice that? It's about conviction, not just courage. So you'd think in a foreign place like that, he'd just need courage, you know, just to be bold and to stand up for himself. Uh, but the impression you get of Daniel is he's not this kind of daring resistance fighter somehow, kind of... Uh, you know, taking up arms. No, the thing he's got is conviction. Have a look at verse 8. There it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It says he set his heart. He made up his mind. It was his conviction, a determination that he would honour God above all else. See, it was his conviction that produced courage, that produced courageous action. Not the other way around. It wasn't that he was somehow this courageous guy. And notice the way he takes a stand. I don't know, as you uh, read along, uh, how you would describe it. It's, it's like he's polite, right? Verse 8, he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Excuse me, Ashpenaz, uh, just wondering if I could please not eat this food. It's interesting, isn't it? And Ashpenaz says, no, right? You know, he fears the king, he's got a job to do. No, you can't do that. Ashpenaz fears the king and what the king will do, but Daniel fears God. And so he, uh, he tries another direction. He tries the guard in verse 11, a different guy. And he says, you know, maybe we could try this. What if we try this test? 
and the guard's okay with it. And there it is. Daniel and his friends take their stand. The gentlest and least disruptive resistance movement in history. It's good, isn't it? And I think there's two things on display here. There's Daniel's conviction and his wisdom. Notice that? He works the angles. He talks to people. He respects those in authority and finds a solution that's going to work for Ashpenaz and work for the guard and work for the king. But he doesn't compromise his conviction that his highest honour goes to God. And he won't defile himself because he's resolved. He has set his heart. And that needs to be us as well. Remember Jesus' words? He says, in the world but not of the world. We need that same wisdom to live as as foreigners, even though we're in the world, the wisdom to work out how to negotiate the, the, the difficulties we find, but also the conviction to live differently, not to be of the world, not just to go along with the world's program. See, our aim isn't to make the culture Christian, as if we can convert all the structures of the world. No, our, our aim is to be Christian in a hostile culture and to convince people that there is a God who loves us, a God worth following. And that's Daniel here. He's the faithful foreigner in a foreign place. And uh, that's a help for us to see how Daniel approaches uh, this life in exile. Uh, A Christian friend once chatted with me about uh, one of his drama classes at WAPA. Now, this isn't anyone here at Union Church. Um, but he was talking about this, this class, um, chatting with me about it, and it was a, a class about kind of body movement and body awareness, and it involved varying levels of nudity. Right? Not the usual problem that you encounter in your uni courses, I imagine. Now, how do you negotiate that if you're a Christian? If you're someone who is convinced that God has given us sexuality for our good, that it's a good thing, um, if, you, if you think Christians aren't just prudes, we're just, uh, not just scared of sex or anything, but that God has made it for a purpose, uh, for our, our good and our enjoyment within marriage, that sexuality is a great gift, but that how we use it matters to God. And so to work out what you do in a situation like that takes conviction and wisdom. You need to know what you believe about sex and about sexuality, about our bodies and how God's made us and you need to know what will honour God in the way that we behave like that but also you need to use your wisdom to work out what am I going to do in this situation, you know, do I just quit the whole degree, walk out, do I start a protest, do I talk to my lecturer, Uh, do I ask for some options, do I change units, do I take an F on that assignment and just work hard on the exam. Conviction and wisdom. Now, how would those two things help you in those situations where you feel uh, most out of step with culture? How would conviction and wisdom help you to negotiate that? So far, we've thought about Babylon, the consuming culture, and we've thought about Daniel, the faithful foreigner. And finally, we're going to look at God, the subversive sovereign.
See, if you look closely at, at this story, it's not just about Daniel and Babylon. It's about God. There's three places in, the, in this chapter where God is the active subject, where he pops out and you see his work. So you have a look right back at the start uh, there in verse 2. Babylon attacks Jerusalem and it says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So it seems like Babylonian, Babylon are the winners, right? But that's not what's going on here. This isn't God getting whipped. The reason they've been taken off to Babylon is because of God, because it's God's judgment on Israel. His people have been disobedient and they've worshipped other gods and they've gone their own way. And so God, in his justice, sends his judgment onto his people. He's the one in control. And so this should tell us something, something that I think Daniel has worked out, right? That if God was in control in sending them to Babylon, then God will still be in in control when they're in Babylon. And that's exactly how it works out. Have a look at verse 9. Daniel's working out what to do, and it says, Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. Why is he even able to take this stand? Because God is at work. And then look further down, verse 17, it says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. God is the one who works. God gave knowledge and understanding. Seems like the perfect uh, memory verse during exams, doesn't it? Uh, Just kind of do a little cross-stitch of that and hang it above your, your desk. God is the one who is at work giving them knowledge and understanding. Daniel's success comes from God. He makes Daniel's wise moves work out. He gives them understanding in their classes. The point is that God's in charge. Even in the bad times, even in exile, God is the one who oversees everything. He's sovereign. And that applies to us as well. If you think about uh, our life together, uh, even if Uni Church gets kicked off campus, God will still be in charge. Even if you get overlooked at work uh, because you won't overcharge clients or cut corners, God's still in charge. Even if uh, you fall behind in class, get lower marks because you won't uh, cheat here at uni, God is still in charge. And if God was in charge over Daniel's classroom, then he'll be in charge over your classroom as well. And really, that's why he is the subversive sovereign. Sovereign because he's in charge, but subversive because he defies expectations. He works in ways you don't expect. See, first he takes down his own people and brings them low in in punishment, and then he takes kind of little old Daniel and he places him at the highest order of Babylonian power, just like that. Incredible. And there's this final little Easter egg about God's sovereignty in um, the very last verse of this chapter. Have a look with me, verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Seems pretty innocuous. What's going on there? Uh, It seems simple until you realise that King Cyrus is from Persia, not from Babylon. 
this world superpower, this titanic, this unsinkable ship of the Babylonian Empire, it's fallen, taken over by the Persians. And there's little old Daniel, still kicking on, outlasting empires. See, God is the subversive sovereign. So you think that Babylon will last forever, and it just doesn't, because God's in charge. You know what lasts? God's people, they last. God's promises to his people, they last. It's an amazing little message for us that we can have confidence as we live as a minority, if we feel like we're in a hostile culture, we can know that God is sovereign, that he continues to work for the good of his people. We don't need to fear. That's our little tour through Daniel chapter 1. We thought about Babylon, the consuming culture, Daniel, the faithful foreigner, and God, the subversive sovereign. So what can we take away in terms of how we think about our life, how we think about our culture? Uh, What do we need to learn? Uh, What do we do when we're swimming in this uh, all-consuming culture that uh, was like what Daniel was facing? Well, um, here's what I think we can learn. Uh, Two ways to fail. Two ways to fail. Two ways we can, we can fail at this. Firstly, be absorbed by Babylon. That would be one way to fail here, to fail to live out Daniel 1. Just let ourselves be shaped entirely by our culture. Offer no resistance. Never push back. Never draw a line in the sand. Never stand out. That would be a way to fail. If you just take on the movies and the TV shows and take on the identity and the career path and take on the sexual ethic and the lifestyle and the consumerist culture, just take it all on. Don't think about it and just let ourselves be consumed by the perthonization process that goes on around us. And if we do that, then in the end, who, who will we belong to? That would be one way to fail. Because Jesus wants us to be like him, not like the culture around us. What does Jesus say when he prays for his disciples in John 17? He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They're like me, different in the way that Jesus is different. That's what we're aiming for, different in a way that loves other people. Uh, different in a way that pursues holiness, doesn't just go with, uh, go with the tide. But if we get absorbed by our culture, just swim with the flow, uh, then we'll fail. That's one way to fail. The second way to fail, I think, would be to underestimate God. Would be to underestimate God. See, resistance always feels futile. You know, what difference did it really make for four guys uh, to just eat veggies. I mean, really, what, what, what impact did that have? It's hardly like the Black Panthers, right? They're just, what are they doing? But, if we fa- but we'd fail if we underestimate God. If we underestimate what God is able to do, the one who is sovereign over everything, he can work incredibly. He can take these lowly exiles and make them effectively like like governors, like the prime ministers of, 
of Babylon. He's sovereign and he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And so we can, with, with confidence, we can stand by our convictions. And we can do it politely. We don't need to rage and fight. We can look to God for conviction and wisdom to work out how to live in a way that pleases Him. And we can do it because we know that He is sovereign. Now, our stand of faith will look different to Daniel. For Daniel, it was uh, over the food that he thought would defile him. And our stand of faith won't be over food, but it will be over something. What will it be over? Will it be over something to do with the Bible's view on sexuality? Will we need to make a stand uh, over freedom of religion or freedom of speech so that we can keep on preaching the gospel? Whatever it is, uh, let's not get absorbed by our culture. Let's work out how to make that stand of resistance, to have the conviction to know uh, when we must act in a way that honours God and goes against the flow and... Let's not underestimate what God can do with that.